All right. G'day. Good morning. I'm doing this earlier than than what I'd intended to uh, because of an event coming up later today, but I'll, uh, I'll talk about that later. Um, I I just put out a tweet about Kevin Mitnick and I, I <laughs> like it's, it's a somber thing when someone dies. It's a bit hard to be lighthearted about it, but it, it kind of felt like I should have should have said something about it in this video. It'd be a little bit weird to sort of sit here and go, oh, yeah, Vic, everything's normal. <laughs> everything's fine. Uh, so I got up, where are we now? 7.30. I got up about three hours ago and uh, and did my normal r morning routine. And I'm flicking through my Twitter and it's like, I see Kevin's wife. And so that's a bit, like that's an odd post. And then, then we see that he died. Uh and that, that came as a real shock. So I, I put out a tweet and said, look, I'd, I'd known Kevin for a while. Uh, yeah, and look, just in case you don't know who Kevin Mitnick was, um, he, I, I think he would often go by the, the, the moniker, like the world's most notorious or well-known or something hacker. Now, Kevin, when he died, was in his late 50s, uh, which is way too early for anyone. Uh, pancreatic cancer, according to uh, his obituary, which which I didn't know about. Um, but he was, I think, notorious is a reasonable word. He was very notorious uh, around late 80s into the 90s for phone freaking, for for hacking the, the, the telephone systems in, in the US. And it was at a time where technology itself, let alone InfoSec, was, was very, very different to what it is today. We've got many would say it's still a very immature industry at the moment, but certainly a much more mature industry than what it was then. And folks really just didn't understand that this whole curiosity that that Kevin and others like him had at the time uh, around figuring out how phone systems work, grabbing all sorts of things that he wasn't meant to grab, but at a time where it, it hadn't really been done before. And, and he, I guess in many ways, was sort of the first person to fall a foul of the law, certainly in such a noteworthy way. Back then, uh, in the the tweet I just put out, I, I referenced his book. He he wrote a book called Ghost and the Wires, which I remember reading, must have been about ten years ago, well before I got to know him. And it, I just thought, wow, this this was a really really entertaining read. Uh, there's a lot of boring infosec books out there, and Kevin has written some of those as well. Some of his stuff is a lot more. Uh, you know, Art of Deception, Art of Intrusion, these sorts of books, which are much more technical. But this was an entertaining read. It was fascinating because it sort of takes you through the path of how he, he started the phone freaking process and socially engineered people. He was very well known for social engineering. Got in trouble, went on the run. I think it was on the run for, it was either like one year or two years. Like it was a long time, changing identity, hiding out, eventually getting caught by law enforcement. And then because no one really understood at the time what this hacking thing was, and all this stuff was starting to go digital, the government really lost their minds and, and threw the book at him something shocking to, to the extent that he got locked up in solitary confinement for quite some time. Uh, and there was, uh, I, I remember at the time, and this, I would have been a lot younger at the time, but I remember a lot of, you know, free Kevin signs, and Steve Wozniak was very involved in like the free Kevin movement and wanted to, uh, wanted to sort of, lend his voice to the get Kevin out of jail sort of movement. Uh, and eventually, of course, he, he did get out of jail, uh, obviously with a record, <laughs> many records, and went on to create a, a very successful career. Uh, and, you know, Kevin, the, like it, 
objectively for everyone, he was a bit polarizing. A, a bunch of people that that weren't so keen on him, in part due to be, <laughs> due to the fact he did have a rather strong criminal record, uh, and also in part due to I, I think probably the way he promoted some things later on. But you know, there's, there's no denying he was like massively influential. Everyone knew who he was. I would argue that he was the most uh, well-known name in our industry. And then uh, about about six years ago, um, I think we chatted online once or twice. But he messaged me and said, oh, I'm on, on the Gold Coast. You know, do you want to catch up? So I told this story in, in the tweet I just posted. I said, uh, I just got a boat at the time, my first boat. Now, I'd had jet skis for a while. Uh, and they're a forgiving thing, the jet ski. You can put it anywhere, push it back in the water, roll it, dip, usually get away with that, <laughs> except on those two occasions, another story. But anyway, I got this boat. So going, all right, let's go out to this uh, this island, South Stradbroke Island. We'll, we'll go to this cafe, Tipler's Cafe. So we uh, we jump on this boat, the kid's there as well, and we head out to this island. Beautiful day. He's got his drone. We go to the island. He's flying the drone around, taking all these nice videos and things. And uh, I moor the boat. Brand new boat owner, so I really don't know what the hell I'm doing. And uh, he, uh, we spend the afternoon there having like a lunch at this cafe and then I just remember we've we've walked back to the boat and I'm like why is the boat like halfway up the beach you know because I'd I'd moored it and I think the way I'd moored it is I'd tied a uh I'd chucked the anchor out the back of it and then I'd had a bow line off a off a tree onto the boat so it was sort of tied on both ends sitting in the water it would stop it moving around and of course the tides come down to the hull past the hull back past the prop such that there is a significant portion of beach between the water and the boat. Now, it's not a jet ski. You can't just roll the bastard back in. So, so okay, we're stuck here. So, no problem, because the tide will come back up. And when it comes up, the boat will float and we'll go. And then <laughs> as the tide starts to come back up, this this massive storm rolls in. This would have been uh, January. I think it would have been January 2017 is my feeling. Maybe January 2018. Might have been January 2018. Let's call it five and a half years ago. And this massive storm starts rolling in. <coughs> so <coughs> everyone goes for cover. <coughs> the smart people get out of there fast enough, but we can't get out because the boat's stuck on the beach. And we were there for lunch. We didn't leave. I have a feeling it was until about 8 p.m. So I think we probably spent about six hours or something sitting on the, uh, sitting in, in Tipler's Cafe on South Strati with, with the kids playing Jenga. And I was asking Ari this morning, I was like, hey, mate, remember that guy, the one who'd been in prison in solitary confinement <laughs> and we're having these really interesting conversations that we got stuck on the island. Can you remember what it was he was doing? Now, I think it was card tricks. It might have been either like lockpicking or slider handles or something that just seemed to fit more with an identity who'd done time, you know? So, um, so that was sort of the, the memory. And, and eventually it just got to the point where it's like, it's, it's pitch black. It's the rain's not clearing. It's just getting later. It's like, yeah, we just, just got to go. So I, I remember I had the phone up, the little phone holder on the boat with some of the nav maps up, trying to stay in the right location. Jet ski doesn't matter. We've got a lot of sandbars and things like that here. Like if you stuff it up, it's bad news. Jet ski, you can get away with like, you know, 10 centimetres of water. Uh, boat, <laughs> not so much. So it's navigating home, uh, just lo looking at the little beacons 
the little markers, you know, stay between the red and the green, the red on this side, the green on that side, so on and so forth. And we just got home drenched. Uh, and, and he was there with his, his later-to-be wife as well. And I just remember both of them going, well, that was actually really good fun. So, okay. So each year we'd, we'd catch up because he was here on a regular basis. His, his wife is Australian. Uh, and he'd be here either because they, they want a holiday or he'd be here. He was here for the OzCert events once, maybe twice. And like it was all, it was always fun. He, he was a very different character. Don't get me wrong. Like it's, it's funny. I was chatting to someone else, uh, who's often here on this, <laughs> this live stream about 10 or 15 minutes ago. And he's like, well, look, everyone in this industry is, is a bit odd. It's like, yeah. But there are degrees. <laughs> Kevin was uh, was out there. So, look, it's 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 quite sad. I I had last seen him. I, I think I last saw him in probably January last year. And based on his obituary, uh, let me actually see exactly what it said. So I'm not not getting something of significance wrong here. Um. So he actually passed away five days ago. I like I said, I just learned this this morning. Uh, 59 years old, pancreatic cancer for more than a year. The, the only hint I had is, is Charlotte and I had seen him on TV. It must have been a few months ago. Um, and we both said he, he, looks, he looks quite different. I think his head was shaven at the time, which might have been it. And, of course, now we, we know why. His, uh, his wife is pregnant with their first child, uh, which is... Which is uh, in in my objective mind, it's like, what do you when you're done? And we'll all be done at some point in time. When you're done, what's left? Now he's got a, an amazing industry legacy. Having a, a child as well, I think is I think it's it, it's it's an amazing thing uh, for, for Kimberly. That will be yeah, obviously extraordinarily difficult. But I didn't know that um, uh, that she was pregnant or that. Or that he was unwell, because it, it had been, again, probably a year and a half since we saw each other. But, uh, yeah, I just, just felt quite sad about that. So, anyway, moving on, because there's always a lot of other stuff. There is always something else. When I <laughs> eventually move on, there will still be many, many other things to do. For you guys, not me, obviously. Who's here? George, Wayne, Josh, Steve, g'day, guys. Richard is here. G'day, Richard. Joe is uh, he's in the UK. Loves the McLaren T-shirt. All right, Joe's the only person to pick it up so far. Because basically, this is the like the subtle McLaren T-shirt. In fact, I, I didn't even realise until I sat down to do this, and I was like, "Oh, I have a logo on today." It's much less subtle on the back. <laughs> so I don't, and it's not like I put this on and then drive the McLaren because there's something like super, super obnoxious about that. But I don't mind it as a T-shirt. Lars, I only joined when you said jet ski, you bastard. What do you break this time? You have to go back and watch it for context, I think, mate. Uh, Brendan says, damn, it's just myself out of bed the moment the ping came through and still late. Uh, I want to talk about you later, Brendan, because you have caused me a great deal of work this week in the best possible way. But I'm going to save that to the last because I really appreciate the idea you gave me last week. And it has, uh, it has honestly made a big difference. I definitely want to send you some stickers. Business as usual. Sponsor. <laughs> let's, let's get back on track. Our sponsor this week is Collide again. We had a break from Collide last week. Collide are back with a vengeance this week. Collide ensures that if a device is secure, it can't access your apps. It's device trust for Okta. Watch the demo today. Collide has been a massive sponsor this year and previous years as well. 
Uh, notice we are linking through to a new page this time. Fill out this form to get access to Glide's on-demand demo where you can go over the current state of endpoint security and wise solutions like MDM, full short. How Collide Device Trust integrates with Okta to ensure that if a device isn't secure, it can't access your apps. We've spoken about that many times, the whole zero trust thing. Had a discussion with someone on Twitter about Shelley's and all of that a moment ago. We're going to talk about Shelley's later. And finally, a demo of zero trust access model with Okta and Collide that doesn't create the IT bottleneck. So please go and check out Collide. Massive sponsor on the blog. Uh, and a big thanks to those folks. Moving on. I, I did a radio interview this week, and it was one of those ones where they call up and they're like, hey, what do you think about the military emails in Mali? I'm like, uh, got a link. <laughs> like a, a link would help. And they sent the link, and it turned out to be, I thought, a pretty run-of-the-mill kind of benign story. But then uh, someone pinged me, and they're like, hey, can you talk about this in, in the weekly video? So I thought, okay, it is kind of interesting. So the, the headline here is Typo sends millions of US military emails to Russian ally Mali. So apparently millions of US military emails have been mistakenly sent to Mali, a Russian ally. <laughs> it's news. Because of a minor typing error. And, and, and what they're doing is, is people are mistyping the TLD because the difference between a military domain ending in .ml and a Mali TLD ending in .ml is one character. It's an I. So if you were sending your top secret documents unencrypted to a .mil address, but it was actually a .mul, let's call it a .mil address, you may have been sending your secret military things to the Russians. <laughs> I like this. It says, the Pentagon said it had taken steps to address the issue. Now, there's... there's I guess there's a few layers here, right? Um, the first thing that struck me as I started reading this is like, do people really think that there's like lots of top secret unencrypted stuff being sent to .mil addresses such that they would really be genuinely useful? Now, there's probably a little bit of that, but there is a very strict set of protocols around things that are considered uh, top secret or confidential. Uh, and it is not just whacking it in plain text in an email. Now, that said, I imagine a lot of that is the internal communications within that .mil domain. I do wonder how many external things came through. And I, in fact, I said uh, in the interview, it's like, look, we, we have controls to, you know, for example, flag to people that you're sending an email to someone outside your own domain. Uh, that is there. The, the typo thing, I think, is interesting. There's a bit in here that goes into domain squatting as well, where, uh, you know, obviously uh, domain squatting, remains a thing because it's it's an easy win. If you go and register, you know, army.ml, <laughs> for example, that uh, that might snare you some interesting emails. I, I suspect more than anything, it would sh snare you a truckload of spam and other junk, but it would be curious. The other thing, of course, is this this whole challenge with humans reading URLs. And I've spoken many times before that the the, the thought that humans can actually read and understand URLs and make sensible decisions in any sort of reliable fashion is, is just ridiculous. I can't, uh, you can't, the general masses definitely can't, simply because we don't know a lot of the time what the correct URL is. Now, what I mean by that, I don't know if, let's say it's Aussie Bank, <laughs> fragrance sake. Is it 
aussiebank.com.au? Is it aussie-bank.com.au? Is it aussie-bank.com? Is it aussie-bank.au? Like there's all these different variations. Uh, is it aussie-bank-support.com? In case, like you, you just don't know, even when there's no trickery involved in terms of like dropping a letter here or there. So I think for the most part, this is a bit of a non-story because typo squatting has been around forever. People getting URLs and domains and things wrong has been around forever. Uh, the, the military sending important confidential top secret things by means other than plain text email has also been around forever. So this, this does feel like a bit, of a, a bit of a slow news day, as they say. Now, speaking of news, something actually I forgot to put this on the list. The Ashley Madison Affair, where's my iPad? Ashley Madison Affair documentary is out and it is available for people on Hulu if you're in America or I believe the UK has Hulu. We don't have Hulu in Australia. What we do have in Australia is we have Disney Plus and it is also on Disney Plus. And this is a documentary uh, that probably doesn't need a whole lot of introduction. I'm just trying to find. So, so you get the name. It's called The Ashley Madison Affair. It's a three-part documentary. And it, it obviously just details the, the story of the whole Ashley Madison debacle, the, the website itself, uh, who was on there, why people were on there, the affairs, the marriage breakups, the data breach, which is where I come in. <laughs> so so um, I filmed part of this in Oslo in December. So we'd been talking about this for, for a long, long time. There's a bunch of Brian Krebs in there as well. Krebs was really instrumental uh, in, in breaking the story originally. And a bunch of other people. It's quite interesting. Like there's a guy here who's some C-suite exec from, uh, from Ashley Madison, still there today, I believe, which is quite interesting. There's you know a guy who was on there having an affair. There's a lady whose husband had an affair. Incidentally, it normally tends to be that way too. Weren't a lot of actual women on the Ashley Madison website. Uh, but I've found it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I do find there are some people in there. I was saying a show, I was like, why is this person on this documentary? Like, what, what is this person's purpose? They're like a social commentator or something like that. I don't understand why that. It, it feels a little bit dragged out at times. Um, but I have learned some things. I, I did find it interesting, and I found it particularly interesting to sort of see some more analysis around the mechanics of how the business ran. I mean, we know, for example, that there weren't a lot of legitimate women on there, not compared to men. Uh, we also learned that there were there are many use cases where people were not necessarily there to have a fair. There's, there's one guy who features quite prominently, and he's a swinger. Now, <laughs> I find that a fascinating world. But anyway, he's obviously very, very comfortable being being out there talking about it. Uh, and it's just really interesting to sort of hear his perspective. I'm just up to, we've got about nine minutes left of the third and final uh, episode. And they're just talking about the class actions and things as well. And I, I think we often watch a little bit in bed, but I was falling asleep last night. I think I was pretty much getting to the point where I was like, yeah, there are class actions, but the only people that made money out of it were lawyers. Which is kind of ironic because, like, the people that were getting screwed over as being part of the part of the service, then basically got screwed over by lawyers and got no money out of the class action. Anyway, that probably shouldn't be surprising. Look at the comments here. Um, Rich is not jet skiing. 
James says mullet t-shirt, business in the front, party in the back. That's that's pretty fair. <laughs> uh, exploring the ways is exactly the subject matter everyone expects on Disney Plus. The only reason I got Disney Plus to begin with was I want a Family Guy, and then I think it like it stopped being on there, or I lost interest, or something, and I let it let it lapse. And then this has come back, and it's like, all right, I'll buy another month of Disney Plus because I actually want to see this. Tom says, Norwegian here. What's your connection to Oslo? I've seen you've been here several times. Was NDC the first time? Oh, wow, okay. Oh, NDC was the first time. NDC 2014 was my first time. And I would go back to NDC every year after that. Uh, I later married a Norwegian, (laughs) a person largely responsible or jointly responsible for managing the NDC conferences. So Charlotte, my wife, is Norwegian. Richard is here. He married us. Lars is here. He was at the wedding. <laughs> it's all very ancestral here, isn't it? So that is the connection to, to Oslo. So Charlotte still has family there. Uh, we go back probably a couple of times a year. We were back there in December. We will be back there again in September. We'll be back there again in January. So lots of Norway. Scott was there as well. Scott's here too. <laughs> Scott doesn't want to be left out. So three of the people here were at the wedding. Um to the Norwegian, and yes, I am learning Norwegian on Duolingo, on Lars's recommendation, actually. Uh, <clears throat> I'm getting there. I've learned a lot about bears eating mooses and things like that. That's basically <laughs> what Duolingo is. I know Lars doing the French one. I don't know what eats what in France, but I don't think it's bears and mooses. Uh, Chris says, Ashley Madison, the data breach that keeps on giving, and you know what? You're right, because it's, it's still making news, not just because of that, but after this documentary, I had someone email the other day saying, hey, can you tell me whether my husband is in Ashley Madison? So given there's only nine minutes left, I don't think this will be in here, but I made a really big point when that data ended up having been pwned of not letting anyone other than the email address owner figure out if they're in there. I don't want to give anyone information about a site like that that is not that person. Now... I don't reply to emails like that. In fact, I don't think this will make the cut either. But one of the, the, the big things about all the all the communication I got about Ashley Madison at the time, and I got hundreds if not thousands of emails from people asking questions, is I did not want to engage and start having a dialogue because they, they're going through the worst time in their life. Uh, people committed suicide over it. Marriages broke down. It was an absolute catastrophe. I'm not equipped to deal with that. I can talk about the cyber, but I can't talk about the relationship stuff. So I end up just creating <clears throat> excuse me, an, an FAQ page. And every time I got an email from someone, if it wasn't already, if, if their question wasn't already on the FAQ page, I'd just reply and say, look, sorry, I can't answer your question, but there's an FAQ page here. You'll find your answer over there. And then it was like, you get an answer without creating a, uh, a new relationship, which probably neither of us needed right then. Mm. <clears throat> so <clears throat> it's interesting to still hear that question come through that... I think it's a bit, <laughs> this always seems disingenuous. I think it's the Kevin Mitnick of the data breach world where we will keep hearing about this <clears throat> for, for probably decades to come. It has just become a canonical, the canonical reference of a data breach. Shelley's. So uh, I tweeted just before, and I didn't plan this, but I've still got Shelley's and things sitting around the, the desk. Day before yesterday, uh, I tweeted some photos 
with a wall full of Shelleys hanging out of them and a desk full of more Shelleys. As we get to the very tail end, thank God, of all these renovations, where we're IOTing the, the new lights that are in there. So there's some new lights in the kitchen, there's some new lights in the garage, everything gets a Shelly so that we can control not just brightness, but uh, you know, on, off, all the rest of it, tied in the home automation. So I'm up to, how many Shelleys I'm up to now? <laughs> I give them sequential IP addresses on my IoT VNet. Uh, what are we up to here? Oop, I've moved that document from there. And I moved it somewhere else. I've been trying to get my uh, my files and things in a little bit more order. Because we all end up with so much stuff all over the place, don't we? Here we go. So I'm running on 192.168.20. And we have filled in everything from 177 through to 255, which <clears throat> gives a 254, which makes it 78 Shelleys at the moment in the house. <clears throat> um, just before I did this video, I was setting up one of the dimmers. They're these green ones here. <clears throat> and there's a calibration process. Now, this dimmer is driving uh, an LED light in the garage, it, it goes from, uh, it, it, well, it sits behind the mains power socket, goes into a transformer, then drives this uh, LED strips, which is sort of in this new bar in the in the garage. And it was doing the calibration and then the Shelly went into like a safe mode because apparently it was at over 100 degrees Celsius, which um, I imagine is, is not good for the Shelly and probably not good for the stuff in the wall behind it either. So it actually shut itself down as a safety precaution. <coughs> Probably a good idea. Now, as part of this whole setup, everything will join the existing automations. So uh, of a night, things will turn off automatically. Of a, of a morning, some things turn on different brightnesses. Some things turn on from motion. For the most part, it's actually all tracking pretty well. I still have a problem with my home assistant, which is that it uh, shuts itself down every now and then. And it did it again this morning. I got a thing. I got about four or five days out of it. I do still have my CM4 module <laughs> sitting here, waiting to go into my Home Assistant Yellow, which will then have an NVMe SSD, uh, which drives all of the important bits. So still waiting for all this stuff to arrive. Unfortunately, I'm not quite sure it is. There's some sort of backlog. But other than that, it's actually been very reliable. I am thinking. I've had this sort of duplicitous kind of arrangement where there's the native Shelly integration for Home Assistant, which came along more recently. And before that, I had everything on MQTT. So these can work over message queues. So there's an MQTT bus and Home Assistant. This was broadcasting messages, receiving messages. And I ended up setting up every Shelly on both. So I had both MQTT and the native integration, which makes a hell of a mess because you end up with the same device listed twice, just one with the native Shelly integration and one with MQTT. Now I am wondering, part of the reason I did this is I was having some reliability problems with the network where I think I just had like way too much broadcast traffic, just too many things there that I was starting to have trouble addressing a bunch of them. But for the most part, I think it's now pretty reliable. I'm just looking at the, I've got a, a dashboard page that lists every single Shelly and the history graph, uh, so we can see when it's when it's been accessible and when it's dropped off and what the status is on or off. Now, with only like maybe one or two exceptions, it's been it's been pretty solid for some reason. The one in Ari's closet, 
<laughs> keeps going on and off. I don't know why. Dropping on and off. But for the most part, they've been pretty good. So I, I do need to think about um, do I do I drop that MQTT because it would save some setup as well. The native Shelly integration, you join the Shelly to the network, it pops up in Home Assistant a couple of minutes later, you give it a name, it's job done. You don't have to go and configure it with all the MQTT stuff and then give it a, a channel name and have it broadcasting messages and then go into the Home Assistant and then add it all up. So uh, if you have experience with this, <laughs> is the Shelly integration, the native Shelly integration for Home Assistant reliable enough that I can ditch MQTT? Let me know your thoughts on that. Christian says, my first NDC was on a workshop, Hack Yourself First with Troy Hunt. All right, cool. That's nice. That was fun. <laughs> Tom, that would explain you going back to Oslo multiple times. Thanks for answering. Fun to learn how you met your wife there. Yeah, well, that's crazy, isn't it? Um, it's going to be – it'll be my 10-year NDC anniversary next year. I'm, I'm seriously considering making a trip back to NDC in, uh, in June next year as well. So I'd like to do that. It's a little bit far out to plan for now. Richard, I tried the brightness knob on the television, but the show didn't get any better. That's terrible. Uh, Richard says, I think I'm ready for a Shelley subnet. I've thought about this. Um, when I do, it will be easy enough because every Shelley has got an API and every Shelley can, can have its settings configured via the API. So as, as part of my, like, Shelly management process. I wrote a little app that can pull back the status of every Shelly. It can also check if there's a firmware update required and then it can take the firmware update. So if Shelly makes a release tomorrow, I can just run one app and then everything just goes through and gets the update, which is super cool. Now, equally, I figured if ever I do want to drop MQTT, I can just add to the little app, hit whatever command it is to flush out the MQTT details. And if ever I want to change the network that it's on, I can also do that. I can I can go through and create another Wi-Fi network and just flick everything over to like a Shelly network. I don't need to yet. I've still got plenty of address space on the IoT network. Um, but at this rate, who knows, right? We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Now, someone did suggest to me earlier today, and they were quite emphatic about it, <laughs> that I should be flashing with ESP Home. And they said, well, because find the thread because <laughs> I'm, I'm still i'm not sure if i'm missing something here so this guy on twitter steven steven Hag, he says uh if you have ESP, esp home you can use them as ble proxies too now mind you you've got to have a ble enabled shelly which all the ones i have don't have the newer ones uh do support ble so that wouldn't give me anything you can also have the firmware interact with home assistant example i have a garage door it's controlled with the shelly when i have alarmed when i have armed the alarm i've added a lambda so it won't open even with HomeKit. so it looks like the shelly is detecting that the security system is alarmed so it won't open the door if the alarm is on but depending on how you open your door if you're triggering that through home assistant then home assistant can use a condition to look at the, the situation with the door anyway so I, I just don't see how that gives any value so with my pool controller, it's all ESP Home. If the pump turns off or low pressure, acid, nor chlorine, Atlas specific, Atlas Scientific, okay, that's his equipment, will not pump. And if pumping is turned off, all in Lambda, I can also ensure there is no web endpoint on the device. Well, so the first point, again, you can all you can do that with home assistant automations anyway. And as for no web endpoint on the device, well, first of all, you can VLAN it off. 
So I just, I just don't see what the problem is. And I can keep them all on a separate VLAN, which you can do anyway. No access to internet, which you could do anyway, except you want it to be able to do firmware updates. Or anything except a route to HA. Uh, and then I'm like, yeah, but you can do all that from HA. The final comment, and I will go back to him because I want to see what I'm not understanding here. Haven't seen a way to stop a HomeKit Siri command from an automation. Opening my garage door will trigger my alarm, so stopping the possibility in ESP Home is really a fail-safe way. Also, my garage Shelly is a cover and not a switch, since it's at an ESP Home and not as a switch. But you can create a cover that uses a switch anyway, and if you're triggering both your alarm and your door all through Home Assistant, well, you're fine anyway. So, yeah. I'll go back to him. I, I, I don't... I, I, I just feel that sometimes there's a little bit of a movement where people are like, let's open source everything uh, and let's reflash all of the firmware for everything because, and I, I don't know, it just it doesn't always stack up to me. Hmm. Lars, I only use the native Shelly integration, but I don't have 75 of them either, only 15. <coughs> I think, to be honest, regardless of the number you have, it probably doesn't change it too much. Richard says, I've done that now. MQTT is unemployed. All Shelleys are native now. I'm thinking the new ones, I won't set up MQTT on them, but what I've ended up doing is, is I suffix every device with either underscore MQTT or underscore Shelley. So I've got, <clears throat> you know, like uh, light.troy underscore office underscore MQTT and then underscore Shelley. Now, my, my problem that... My problem there is that we end up with all of these cases where I've got um, a whole bunch of automations referencing MQTT, but I can find and replace. No problems. I've then got a whole bunch of helpers, like light helpers, for example, where I've got multiple devices in there that will be like underscore MQTT, and I'm going to need to change them to underscore Shelley. So that's, that's a bit annoying. I could go down that route. I could just stop the MQTT broker from running. I will see. You guys are talking me into it. We'll give it a go. Wayne, <laughs> do Charlotte the kids get annoyed when things break? Yes. Yes, they do. Uh, and I do too. But I, I figure it's I, – I don't mind so much if, if things break and fixing them refines the process and then everything gets more solid as a result of that. I, I mind – I'm going to turn this Sonos off. Someone, there's a good example of Home Assistant. Someone is ringing the doorbell incessantly. Now, someone who Charlotte's meant to be letting in, so she'll sort that out. When the doorbell rings, it plays a chime on the Sonos. <clears throat> and the Sonos, I've got one sitting on my back shelf. You can see it just there. And if I think I've got about seven or eight Sonos around the house because we've got them in ceiling as well. So it's a great way of like playing that chime um, around the house and you know you don't have to go and get a chime box if you want to integrate with your doorbell but <clears throat> if my home assistant shuts down like it did before then the doorbell doesn't work and you miss people so that does remain a bit of a problem uh, other things in terms of kids getting annoyed or Charlotte getting annoyed when they break it, it's mostly fundamental things like some of the implementations I had around lights where it would be that the switch would be a detached switch. So when you physically click the switch, it doesn't actually kill the power, but it would raise an event. And then Home Assistant would get the event and it would turn on like a Zigbee light or something like that. That I found was just a little bit 
flaky at times. So allowing the switch to literally just toggle the power, so you either have power or no power, has made a really big difference with that. Because then all the automation only sits on top of that and it doesn't change the native function of the switch. Finding a sweet spot. Richard says, I found ESP Home fussier but powerful. The built-in firmware is complete. I assume you mean the native Shelly firmware. Wayne says, only advantage I can think of with ESP32 Home, it's open source firmware versus a Shelly firmware. But what's the actual advantage? Because just saying it's open source doesn't make it an advantage. It's one of my bugbears. I love open source. I have open source things. I use a lot of open source. But that alone is not the value proposition, that there has to be something for... Yeah, so for example, uh, it, it's got massive community contributions because of its open source nature, such as Home Assistant itself. Or it, uh, it is free as opposed to paying a lot of money from some proprietary closed source solution. So I'd much rather talk about features than, than open versus closed. Wayne says you can add Twitch as a sensor for when you're live. The same exists for YT, YouTube. So you could add that to an automization to not ring when you're live. Ooh, I like that. That's good. Or I could just put one of the, uh, one of the smart sockets on the plug for the Sonos and literally just kill the power to the Sonos when I'm live. That would be good. But I need to do more than that because sometimes I'm in meetings or other things as well. Maybe it needs to be when the camera's on. Maybe it needs to be when these key lights are on. So I've got these key lights. If I tap the little Stream Deck button there, they go off. Tap it again, they go on. They are connected and integrated in Home Assistant. So what I could do is I could say if the key lights are on, turn the power off on that. Thanks, Wayne. You just made even more work for me, mate. <laughs> That's great, but I, I like it. The, uh, I have that 77-inch TV sitting on my floor over here. So we, we got a projector downstairs, which made this one surplus to needs. And my thinking was to put it up on the wall as some sort of a sock. Uh, and I've got a – I sort of went, you know, do you really want a massive TV running the whole time? So I did some automations on that, that that look at, you know, am I home or not? So once I leave home, it turns off. When I come home, it turns back on. It doesn't turn on in the morning until the first time I walk into my office and then it turns off. We've got a, a button we click when we're like, okay, go to bed sort of thing. So, you know, stuff like that, that to me is the value proposition because that only adds to life. That doesn't take away. I wake up early this morning and, and I have a million things in my mind. I was thinking if I do do that though, if I put that TV up there, like my own little sock. I don't mind that there's there's stuff I can have on there in the background, bokeh it out, and even if it wasn't bokeh, it wouldn't matter too much, some azure graphs and things like that. The only thing that worried me is if I just start getting reflections, if it reflects back to here, because that might not be what we want to see. So I might have to test that before we drill some holes in the wall. Ali says, there's a Home Assistant plugin for Stream Deck. Yep, I was aware of that. Uh, plus, the Stream Deck can call uh, webhooks. I, I think what you mean, yes, there's a Home Assistant plugin that goes into the Stream Deck because then you can call webhooks from a Stream Deck uh, button push. So, for example, I've got one on there to turn the air conditioning on and off, which is a webhook into Home Assistant, hits the switch bot, which literally pushes the button on the air conditioning to turn it on or off because there is no IR and there's definitely no IoT natively but certainly these lights that's what i need i need like a, a binary sensor somewhere in home assistant which is troy is presenting 
And then I, you know what I could do then? Sometimes I have this this little flashy red light. Like I literally got a red light. I turn the flashy thing on. I put it outside my office so that other people don't come in. I could trigger that off these. Yeah, that's a good idea too. Wow, thank you. You're making more work for me. That's what Christian says. You need an on-air light outside your office. So well, this is the thing. We could do that. Oh, this is the Samsung Frame TV is matte, which is great. Don't make me get another TV. <laughs> we don't need to do this as well. As it is, I now need to build the Grafana dashboard for the SOC, which Stefan has been helping me with. Actually, someone from Grafana reached out and offered some help too, so I probably should take them up on that. Roblox Developer Conference Breach. Now, this suddenly started to get a lot of attention. And I'm just going to spin down to the, the tweet thread I had about this. But um, Roblox is massive. I, I don't know if people understand just how big Roblox is. And it's only every now and then when something like this pops up, it's like, wow, this Roblox is a huge thing. Well, they've got um, <clears throat> a huge amount of of people obviously using the system as as uh, as folks who play the game. Also, there's a huge developer community because <coughs> apparently you can develop stuff for Roblox. So, when was it? Last week, earlier this week, <coughs> I started getting a, a bunch of people sending me either information about or the data itself from this Roblox developer conference, the 2017 to 2020 database. Now I've got a, a screen cap here from the forum it was shared on. This is a cached version because it got deleted off there, but not before it obviously spread everywhere. Said it's essentially when Roblox announces all the shit that they have accomplished and the plans they are going to introduce slash are introducing in the cache cuts off. Anyway, it turned out to be about 4,000 records here in the Roblox developer conference. What do we have in there? We had email addresses. We always have email addresses. Usernames are in there, um, dates of birth, phone numbers, IP addresses, and T-shirt sizes. Now, I saw a bunch of commentary already from people essentially being doxxed because of this. So they might have had a, a publicly known username but wanted to keep their email address, their home address, their phone number, their date of birth, their T-shirt size private, and now it's out there. It does look like Roblox uh, have since disclosed after it went into have I been pwned, which is a bit annoying. That is not the not the chronology we'd like to see. They said, uh, hello. Roblox was recently made aware that there was unauthorized access to select Roblox user emails from a 2017-2020 developer conference invitation list. Maintaining the security of your personal information is of utmost importance to us, except when they leaked all that data and they didn't disclose it until it went into have I been pwned and lots of people started talking about it. Paraphrasing. And we have made efforts to ensure this type of incident is avoided in the future. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> I guess. Now, the person that sent this to me said, uh, Roblox has now contacted everyone affected, minimally affected users, just got a sorry email. For more seriously affected users, they got a year of identity protection and an apology for everyone else. Attach the screenshots of those emails. So it's just normal. It's just normal stuff, isn't it? Uh, um, now, Richard says, so far the Shelly folks have been good with firmware, but other vendors have not. 
I would switch to SP Home if the Shelly firmware went bad. Yeah, look, I agree with that, Richard. Um, I'm seeing firmware. I want to say there's a couple of firmware updates a year. Like it's it's not incessant, but then again, like how much stuff can you really do with this? Maybe you can add some other APIs or something. I don't know. Not a whole lot to change there. Uh, Brennan says, why don't I just have a manual override button on the Stream Deck? I, I could, but I really like the idea of things happening automatically. And the, the idea I really like now is um, <clears throat> toggling that flashy light, having a, a binary sensor, which is Troy's got the lights on or presenting or whatever you call it, and a binary sensor, which then does things like makes that stop working and probably turns on those lights, I turn on the flashy light. I like the automation. Uh, what else? Domains. Now, <clears throat> as I said last week, I, I find that talking through the logic of what I'm doing here really helps. Now, I think this is a good life lesson. Even if you're just trying to understand a concept yourself and you're sitting with your significant other or your kids and you're explaining it to them, very often pennies drop. And I think last week when Brendan chimed in, I'd, I'd said, you know, this is actually really useful because when I when I started explaining this and he came up with an idea, I said it's a little bit like when I was sitting there on Charlotte the other day explaining something technical. And then I realized as I was explaining it, the mistake that I'd made. Now, last week I was talking about there have been pwned domain searches where it's become apparent that the world's largest companies are using it very extensively at an increasingly high cost to us. So I went, okay, look, that's it would seem reasonable that the biggest domains people pay some money for and that it is some sort of a correlation between the size of the domain and the amount of money they pay. And I'm very, very cautious about taking something that's been there for free for almost a decade now and then putting a cost to it. So it's got to be a good reason. It's got to be fair. It's got to be commensurate. It's got to be well communicated. And the, the sort of outline that I raised last week, as I said, I, that the conclusion I'm reaching is it should be at least half of the domains just remain exactly as they are, like totally free. So inevitably the smallest half. And then the rest we distribute into some sort of correlating price range similar to what we have for the API keys at the moment because no one's really complained about that. Everyone seems to go, yeah, it seems pretty reasonable. In fact, I've got that screen up, up uh, over here. So the 10 requests a minute is $3.50 a month, all USDs here. 50 requests is $15, 100 requests is $25, 500 requests is $100. If you want to buy a year's worth, you pay for 10 months, you get 12, which is pretty common industry practice. And I was explaining last week that what I thought was going to be the way forward is you've got the API key stuff here and the domain stuff here, and they'd be priced at commensurate amounts with basically two different products, and then you could sign up to one or both or whatever. And then Brendan said, well, why don't you just roll them all into one? Let's just make it one service. And I th you could like go back and watch the video. In fact, I've got a deep link to it because I think I'm going to put it in the, the announcement blog post. But there's this moment where I'm like, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> like, hang on a moment. I hadn't thought about that. Now, I then spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I realized that it massively simplifies the implementation. To have one sort of product or to reuse the remaining products 
saves a whole bunch of configuration in Stripe. It saves a whole bunch of issues with Stripe webhook callbacks. It saves a whole bunch of issues with tracking them all on the Have I Been Pwned side. It makes life, for me, significantly easier. And I think it also makes things a lot clearer for other people, particularly when you get to the point of saying, so hang on, there's an API key. That's what exists at the moment. So you have an API key. You can query the API and query email addresses. But then there's the domain search, which is also going to add API search. So there'd be another API key. Yeah, but it should be the same API key. Otherwise, you've got two API keys for the same person, which is really confusing. But it's a different API key with a different... Pro and I can just see so many people going, I went and bought... The existing API, but then I can't query the domain. It's like, ugh, that's going to be awkward. So the more I thought about that, I thought like, this makes so much sense. It, it really does. And then I went, okay, well, so, so much of what I'm doing here is, is empirical and evidence-based. So I go and I query the data and then I draw conclusions based on the data. And I went through and did the Venn diagram of like API customers. I've got the figures here somewhere. API customers and domain search customers, existing domain search users. Customers is probably not the right word because I don't pay anything at the moment. And then what is like the Venn diagram between them? Uh, and it, it turns out that, that those exist, those that exist in both, it was only like, what's that, about 15% of folks with an API key are doing domain searches. And then if you start to look at, well, if you're being purely ruthless about it and going, well, does that mean people with an API key aren't going to buy a service which they might have bought otherwise? Well, no, not necessarily, because if you've got a small number of breached email addresses on a domain, it's going to be free anyway. And if you've got a larger number, then you might have to upgrade. Basically, I got to the conclusion that it makes no difference in terms of the, the commercial side of it. So that's what we're doing. I'm going to make one set of products and then they cover both. Now, I was chatting to Brendan about it offline. So one of the things I'm going to do now is name it because it can't just be like the 10 RPM service or the 50 RPM service because that is just applicable to the API key. So do you call it like small, tiny, mega, business, pro, <laughs> ultra? And the way I'm leaning a little bit at the moment, this is, this is almost the lazy way out, but is it just like the pwned one service and that's 10 RPM and however many breached email addresses and then the pwned two and the pwned three and, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, Brendan says we had a bit of fun with naming. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not entirely sure yet. I, I just need it to be clear. I, I find that there's no faster way of creating support overhead than to make something confusing. <laughs> and we do provide support with this as well. We being Charlotte answers a lot of the tickets. I do the techie ones. Uh, it has to be clear and not confusing. So that's the way we're going. Now, the other thing is I now have some really, really good figures on the distribution of, uh, I'll get rid of my Shelley list here, the distribution of domains by size. And here's my, my rough thinking. I sort of said, look, I want to I wanna keep at least 50% of the domains within a free scope. Uh, and, and as I said before, the the most equitable way I can figure this out, which reflects both the overhead of running the service and roughly the size of the organization is how many breached email addresses are there on a domain. Troyhunt.com, I think, has got like two. <laughs> it's like, it's nothing. Most of my data breaches are from my old Hotmail address because it's been around forever. 
So Trillion.com's got like two. Uh, many small businesses might have 10 or 20 or 30. Many large businesses will have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. They are the ones that need to really pay for the service. Now, what I've found is that it, it, it's a combination of like trying to find how do we break down these tiers by evenly sort of distributing the spread of domain sizes, but also how do we do it in numbers that make sense? Like it'd be stupid to go, okay, domains between like zero and seven email addresses, you're in the free, and then those between eight and 20, 28 email addresses, you know, like they're really weird numbers. So here's what I've found. 56% of domains that are currently being monitored and have been pwned have 10 or less email addresses breached on them. Now, I feel that that is a good threshold for the totally free stuff, 56%. So on that basis, we can say for 56% of the domains currently being monitored, if we say it's 10 or less, no change. 10% have between 11 and 25. Now, all these numbers are inclusive. <laughs> I put a poll out on Twitter yesterday because I think sometimes phrases like up to are ambiguous. Now, many people replied, in fact, let me tell you exactly what this poll said, because I think it's kind of fascinating to see people's interpretation of the English language here. So uh, where's that poll? It must be just about to finish. Gee, I tweeted a lot of crap lately. Where is it? Believe it or not, there are still people on Twitter. <laughs> They're still there. They still engage. Oh, here we go. When you see the statement up to 10, what does it mean to you? Now, it's only 12% of people that said less than 10. But that's still a lot of people who read something as being something different to what the other 88% of people read it as. Up to 10 means less than 10. Whereas 88% of people said up to 10 means less than or equal to 10. I don't want to have 12% of people misunderstanding this. So to make it really easy, originally I was like less than 10. And it, it this barely changed the actual numbers in terms of the distribution. But originally I was like up to 10. So anywhere from zero through nine. I've changed it to be anywhere from zero through 10, numbers inclusive. Because if it's ambiguous for anyone, they actually get more. Right, so let's like under promise and over deliver sort of thing. Right, so between zero and 10 is 56% of all domains. Between 11 and 25 is 10% of all domains. Now, here's why I think those numbers are important. That 11 to 25, if that gets priced roughly equivalent to that existing model of $3.50 a month, that is the cost of a cup of coffee. Now, I know this because I went down to my local and I took a photo. Of the, to be honest, I didn't even think about it very much anymore because it's, like, it's, it's a coffee. A coffee is not something that most of us think about purchasing. Now, to spend a cup of coffee a month, I think we can reasonably say is an inconsequential amount of money for most people, particularly if you're doing domain searches and things like that. Now, that would make it certainly less than four US dollars uh, a month. Uh, incidentally, that cup of coffee at my local, six Aussie dollars. Six Aussie dollars for one of these in a cup. Seems expensive, doesn't it? 
<laughs> Maybe just getting old. But I seem to remember it always being like $3.50 or something. Six bucks uh, for US. So if we could go any domain up to and including 25 email addresses, which is two-thirds of all of them, is less than a cup of coffee a month, I feel okay with that. Tell me if you disagree in the comments here or message me later on and <laughs> abuse me for it. But that means 56% of people could keep doing what the, or 56% of domains, or let's say it's a roughly one-to-one -one kind of relationship, could keep doing what they're always doing for free. If they want to spend a cup of coffee a month, well, then they'd also get API access so they could tie that into whatever process they want and they could also get support too. The remaining three tiers, I'm looking at 26 to 100, 101 to 500, and then over 500. Now, I've chosen those numbers because they're a combination of a fairly even distribution between the remaining remaining set of domains, and they're also fairly round numbers, 25, 100, 500. 56% then would be in that totally free tier. 10% would be 11 to 25. 12% would be 26 to 100. 11% would be 101 to 500. And 11% would be over 500. So you can see how it sort of very evenly distributes that remaining 44% uh, between those remaining tiers. That to me feels pretty good. Let me see the comments. Brennan says, everyone has obnoxiously large handles on the wall linked to presenter mode automation. It's <laughs> for dramatic effect. I just want to do it automatically. George says, let's be real. Anything with over 10 million in turnover is not going to care about however much HLBP costs. Well, I agree with you. But the cost isn't going to be the problem. <laughs> what I know is going to be the problem is the procurement hurdles that people have to go through. And I spoke about this last week. No matter how inconsequential the money is, as soon as someone needs to procure something from a big corporate entity, it is painful. And I say this having been in a big corporate entity for 14 years and going through this pain in Pfizer. You would like to buy a pencil. Oh, that's going to be difficult. All right, we had a stationary cupboard. But uh, you want to buy an online service for like 10 bucks or something. Now, I think we were worth 200 million at the time. <laughs> Getting 10 bucks approved was a nightmare. That is going to be people's problem. We are spending a lot of time trying to ease that burden, trying to take away the barriers that, that people have through things like really investing heavily in the terms and conditions. Well, say investing heavily, paying KPMG a bunch of money to go through and write all this and iterate over and over and over again until we get terms and conditions spot on. Making things like taxation forms and other formal documents available. I'm going to talk about that another time because it's boring as hell, but there's actually a lot of work that goes into it. The barrier won't be the cost. The barrier will be that there is a cost. It doesn't matter what the cost is. But it's a fair point, George, and I agree. I think if you're earning 10 million bucks a year and you've got to spend a cup of coffee a month in order to create domain, no problems with me. Uh, Brennan says, it does become a bit flawed in cases where people use a catch-all address. If you're talking about the numbers, it, it depends. Um, now, as I said, my old Hotmail address, I'm in, I, I think it might be 28 breaches. But... I've had that address since I think 1995. I am an extraordinary person in terms of how many different places I've left it. 
there must be a tiny, tiny number of people that have a catch-all address on a personal domain and have had more than 25 data breaches. Must be tiny. There will be some. It will happen. And then they'll just need to decide. Now, of course, incidentally, I have absolutely zero intention ever of putting any sort of commercial cost on that free email address search on the front page. So if some website gets popped and you're in that breach, uh, you can always go to the front page and still search it. Incidentally, the other thing I'm pretty adamant about, whether you pay for a subscription or not, I want people to be able to prove that they control the domain, add it to their dashboard that exists now, and get alert emails. And then what folks can do is go, okay, I'm going to subscribe to the domain and sign up. Uh, I don't want to pay anything. But if I get an alert later on and it says there's like five email addresses on my domain, then I can choose to pay. And maybe I pay for a month and I pay that cup of coffee and I get the answer. But also if it's a catch-all domain and you get an alert and it says, let's pick a good example. Let's say Roblox. (laughs) I get an alert and it says, uh, you have one email address in the Roblox data breach on your domain. Then you, with the catch-all domain, would probably go, I bet it's Roblox. I'll go to the front page. I'll put in roblox at mydomain.com. There's your answer. Free. <laughs> so you get to skirt around the uh, skirt around the problem. Christian says from 0 and 10, that is, yeah, <laughs> see, it's ambiguous, isn't it? It's just, it is ambiguous to some people, and some people is enough. Josh says 350 is a small coffee a few years ago, which only reinforces your point about how cheap it is. I will say, like, I, I, I think I incommensurately, incommensurately worry too much. I think I worry too much about how people will react to things like pricing because for the, for the public email or the public uh, API key, I honestly have not had a single person complain about it being unfairly priced. I've had lots of people say, can I please have a free key because reasons, in which case we direct them to a KB, which just explains the whole thing is fully automated, all tied into Stripe. If $3.50 is too much, this just might not be for you. Chris, first time on the live stream. G'day, Chris. Welcome. Scott says, it's a bit hard to pronounce that first word, Scott. Something starting with an F about procurement. (laughs) He says, can you sell a 10-year API key so I only have to do it once? Now, The annual subscriptions are one of the best things we did there. By having annual subscriptions and you've only got to go through that procurement process once a year instead of 12 times a year, that is massive. Like that has been a really, really big uh, big bonus to, to people. It saved a lot of pain. Uh, but you know that. You and I have spoken about that many times, mate. But procurement is just, holy shit, it's, it's so painful. And it just it just feels unnecessarily painful as well. Josh says, I oh, know, Scott Helm, will the IPI key be deprecated over those 10 years so that it can be renewed using the plant replacement budget? I <laughs> know, no, but this is what it's like, right? So many bad procurement memories. I've um, <clears throat> started drafting the launch blog post, and, and incidentally, my, my goal is to launch this two weeks from Sunday. Uh, I think that's going to be feasible. Now, when I launch it, I'll put out a blog post and I, I tell this story about when I was at Pfizer. I think I might have said it last week, so I won't repeat the whole thing. But it, it basically boiled down to a, a mate of mine in the tech department paying the Azure bill each month out of his own pocket 
which was only tens of dollars, to save the company tens of thousands of dollars a year because they just made the procurement process literally impossible to go and self-service yourself some azure. So poor old Dennis, who used to just pay that himself, which was sucky. But that's the way it tends to be. Brynn off to work. Thanks, mate. I think we're going to wrap up here anyway. I uh, appreciate all, all the input on this. If you do listen to this later on and you have thoughts on the domain stuff, please keep uh, keep sending that through. Because it's sort of well, – I've got two more of these before I launch. I'll, I'll share more next week. I think I'll be able to sort of finalise all the pricing stuff next week as well and then more again the week after. And I'm doing it here rather than tweeting it just so that you get the whole narrative and emotion and everything else that goes with this and no context is lost. But eventually, of course, I will wrap it all up into a blog post and announce all the things properly. Now, the last thing, actually, I said very early on, I was doing this bit earlier today. I am off to the Splendor in the Grass, I think, music festival later today to go and speak at the Science Tent tomorrow. Now, it's a very, it's a very local Aussie thing. Charlotte said it, they're trying to be like the Coachella of Australia or something like that, where it's like it's music and science and tech and things as well. So I'm going to be talking about some things there uh, tomorrow. I've basically said, look, I can turn up and talk, but I don't have the time <laughs> to go and do any other prep. So I hope it's actually a good event. We're going to head down there later today and uh, have a nice dinner or something like that. And if you're, if you're at Splendor tomorrow, come say hi. Cheers, folks. See you next time.